And Father, we thank you for the privilege that you give us to have breath to be able to proclaim that, to have strength to be able to live that, to have hearts to be able to appreciate your kingship and your kingdom. So here we are, not just in a church service, we're in the midst of our lives, our stories. We're not just in this room, we're all over the world. And I pray for every person within the sound of my voice that you would enable us to embrace our calling to be worshipers of King Jesus, to be worshipers of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to live our lives embracing, tasting, acknowledging, and responding to the worth of who you are and what you do. And that includes all the stuff that we're dealing with at this moment. None of us have come out of a perfect story. We've all got our stress points. We've all, some of us are underneath the pile. Others of us are on top of the mountain, but we're all in the midst of zigs and zags. And in the midst of following that path, enable us, not just as individuals, but as a community, to be a people who taste your enoughness, who celebrate it, who live it, who share it. I, as much as I care about these men and women, I have nothing to say to them that would be of any value unless what I say is rooted in your word, unless what I say is breathed by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, teach us. Teach us what it means to be fully human Meaning, teach us what it means to be human beings who relish in the kingdom of God. I ask this in the name of the one who is way, truth, and life. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you guys here. Uh, just be glad you're in this particular service. Earlier, we had some air conditioning issues. In fact, they're still working on them, but they came this morning. Icicles were hanging off of the, the ceiling. Maybe not quite that cold, but it was chilly. So that's, uh, we're, we're adjusting that. And, uh, when I came in and felt the coolness, it felt pretty good to me. We live part of the time here, part of the time in Colorado. Uh, it kind of reminded me of elk hunting. Just kidding, it wasn't quite that cold. But uh, when you're elk hunting, you're freezing to death. I've experienced that numerous times. Uh, several years ago, I was with my middle son, Joel. We went out for our first elk hunt. Now, some of you are trou troubled by that, that phrase, hunting. Just insert the word harvesting instead, elk harvesting. And let me further allay your concerns because elk are very safe when Joel and I are hunting them. They, uh, they always survive. But anyway, we were on our first elk hunt and it's a little different from deer and because uh, you're up in the mountains, you've got to go where they are and they are up high. We had to get up about one o'clock, 1.30 in the morning. We had to be rendezvous with these other guys that had invited us to come along. They were experienced elk hunters at 2 a.m. And we're already up in the mountains, but we had to take our four-wheel drive stuff and get up high. So we're on the hood of one of the vehicles, got the map spread out, headlamps on, and these guys were t are saying, okay, you two go over this way. You and we were spreading out out miles. It wasn't just a few feet. And the deal is you want to get wherever you're going and get quiet and get settled because you don't want to spook the elk when they're starting to wake up in the morning. So Joel and I had the GPS and we headed over there. 
to our little spot, and we got all settled in, freezing to death, but excited. And in the darkness, we heard this loud crashing, not too far from us. And in our throats, get, hearts get in our throats. We kind of look at each other through the darkness. And Joe says, I don't know. I said, I think it is. Uh, and, but we couldn't do anything because, you know, regulations, you've got to wait until it's light. So once uh, it was starting to get light enough, we headed in the direction of that sound. And sure enough, it had been an enormous elk, and we started tracking it. Some of you are saying, <laughs> wait a minute, this is your first elk hunt and you're now tracking an elk? Well, slight detail, there's about a half a foot of new snow. So it takes, you know, it doesn't take Daniel Boone to be able to track an 800 pound animal in half a foot of new snow. I mean, it was fairly clear where it uh, was going. So we follow it, uphill, downhill, side hill. We're excited the whole way. We weren't hearing anything for a couple of three hours, but we still go after it. Finally, I said, hey, buddy, I, I think that elk is, is long gone. And I looked at my GPS and realized that we were close to a point when we were there in the darkness hours earlier, looking at the hood on the, the map on the hood of that car. The guy had said, all right, if any of you are in this particular area at such and such a time, rendezvous back. We'll compare notes, uh, find out who's seeing what, and uh, we'll figure out what we'll do the rest of the day. And I said, buddy, we're near that point. How does hot chocolate sound to you right now? And actually, I didn't say it like that. I said, hot chocolate sounds really good right now, doesn't it? So uh, he said, yeah, that'd be good. So we headed over, and there was only one other guy there at the time, but he had a thermos, and it was great, hot coffee. So we're there. He hadn't been as lucky as us. He had heard nothing, seen nothing. So we were telling him our, our story of, uh, of being Daniel Boone and his son uh, in the mountains. And these two guys came up. While we're talking, two guys came up from where Joel and I had been, the same direction. They came up at quite a good click. I mean, they're, and they're excited. They came right up and uh, we said, how you doing? They said, did, well, did, did you see it? Did you see him? I said, no, that, that elk was long gone. They said, no, 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 not, not the elk. Did you see the mountain lion? Uh, no, no, I didn't. What mountain lion? They said, oh, we've been on your trail for about an hour and there's a mountain lion tracking you. <laughs> I said, no way. And they said, absolutely. So we walked back, uh, retraced ourselves, got back to the trail that we had, where we'd been on the trail of the elk and then went back a little ways and sure enough, there was the, the enormous hoof prints of the elk. And then on top of some of those was Joel's and my boot prints. And inside our boot prints and around them, were these enormous paw prints of a mountain lion. Joel said, cool. I said something different and we never saw the elk and we never saw the mountain lion. But what I did see is something that happens in my journey every day of my life. And it also happens in yours. Joel and I, while we were pursuing that elk, we were being pursued by a mountain lion. While we were pursuing, we were being pursued. And that's what happens every day in every one of our lives. We're pursuing 
And while we're pursuing, we're being pursued. You're saying, well, what are we pursuing? Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. If you don't, you can check it out on the screen. We looked at the beginning of this story several uh, weeks ago. So I, before I pick up where we left off, I'll quickly review. At the, at the core of this story, it's, it's a story about Jesus' encounter and his conversation with the woman by the well in Samaria. This woman's been married five times. She's living with a guy now who's not her husband. She's been pursuing marriage. This is a passage about a number of things, but one of the things it's about is longings, as we talked about. We all have longings. I'm not talking about just superficial little desires, deep longings for things like significance and, and intimacy and security and acceptance and resolution and justice and longings for truth and beauty and goodness. Every human being has those. But in our fallen state, those longings get hijacked and warped into weird desires at times. But bottom line, all of us, at the core, have those same kind of longings. And what we looked at uh, a few weeks ago is we ultimately all have a longing for life, the life of Christ, for eternal life. We're in this series called The Community of Eternal Life. And Jesus is about to talk to this woman about becoming part of that community. But we're all, all of us, all of our actions are related to our longings, directly or indirectly. Now, you've got a longing for significance, and so do you. But how you pursue the fulfillment of that longing and how you pursue it could be very different. Uh, I've got a longing for security, so do you. But what we do to fulfill that longing, the pursuits we take out after, it might look different. And they'll look different for me from day to day. For this woman, we don't know all the specific lines, but it could be longings for significance or security or intimacy or acceptance, but she got married and married and married and married and married five times. We don't know why the marriage has failed. She's now living with a guy, it's not her husband. This is not 21st century Hollywood, it's first century Palestine. But she is no different from any human being. We are all thirsty. We've all got soul thirst and we're pursuing what we think will quench our soul's thirst. While we are pursuing, we're being pursued. And she's about to find that out. Jesus tells her in John chapter four, verse 10, after they've had a exchange where he asked her for some water. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. She said, sir, she plays along with him a little bit. Where are you going to get it? You don't have anything to draw with, etc." And then he says in verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life is not just heaven. It's experience in heaven in an undiluted way, but the beauty of the gospel is we're, we're given eternal life the moment that we trust Christ. And Jesus is inviting this woman into a reservoir of eternal life to address some of her deepest, deepest thirsts. Well, she plays along a little bit and says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, 
You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. Now, as we looked at, there might be some legalistic religious people out there that will say, that'll boy Jesus, let her have it, shame her uh, for five failed marriages and uh, living with a guy who's not her husband. He's not shaming her. He's doing surgery. He's inviting her in to engage with her particular pursuit that was not quenching her thirst. There's nothing wrong with marriage until I go to marriage to quench thirst that only God can address. Not, nothing wrong with the job, nothing wrong. So many of our pursuits, they're, 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 they're innocent in and of themselves. In fact, they can be good things until we turn them into something uh, that really is idolatrous. Because we're trying to get from those things what only God can give us. And other times we take on pursuits that are outright sinful from the get-go. They're not quenching our thirst either. And an enormously important thing is for us to be able to embrace what are the pursuits that we're going after instead of God to quench our soul's thirst and own up to them in his presence. Jesus is inviting this woman into that place and she gets a little uncomfortable when he brings up the five husbands thing. So she does what I think I probably would have done, change the subject. This is, he's, get, he's getting a little too close to home. And we always, you know, if we get, if we're talking conversations and something comes up we're not comfortable with, we, we'll change the subject. I mean, and uh, that happens to me as well. I do it myself. It also happens to me. A lot of times when I'm on a, an airplane and they get to that question, so what do you do? And uh, I say, I'm a pastor. And they, you know, I can see the wheels turning. Five billion people on the planet. And I, what are the odds that I'm going to get seated next to a pastor? And people will get real uncomfortable fairly quickly, often, and want to change the subject. I had a guy one time, immediately after said that, he, he looked at me, disbelieved, and then he said, what did you think of the Super Bowl? I mean, that was his next response. So she changes the subject, she thinks. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She changes the subject, she thinks, to worship. That was a hot topic between Jews and Samaritans. Jews viewed Samaritans kind of as half-breeds. They had, they had uh, compromised in so many ways. So how to worship, where to worship, when to worship, something that they was hotly contested. So she brings, uh, she thought, okay, that's a, that's a safe one that'll redirect this conversation. Jesus goes right along with her. He declares, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvations from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. They're the kind of worshipers the Father does what? Seeks. Does that mean God is seeking worshipers? Yes. What, for his ego? No, he doesn't have an ego. He's wired us to be plugged into him. See what Jesus is doing? He's telling this woman, God's been pursuing you while you've been pursuing this. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. 
And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now there are several things going on in this story. Several subjects come up. Let me mention three of them. There's the issue of longings. We look at this. This woman had longings. She was fervently pursuing something she thought would address her longings. You've got worship that enters the story. And of course, God is part of the story. Now, there are many people who think those are not always related. In fact, there are lots of people who think they're not related at all and don't want them to be. There are people that are really wanting to pay attention to their longings, but they said, you know, don't bring God and church and all of that stuff into it. That has nothing to do with my, my thirst as a human being to be fully human. There are other people that will say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm really wanting to, to seek God and relate with him, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. And all we're, you know, institutional church and worship and going to church, don't need that. And then there's that subject of worship. And a lot of people that think worship's not related to longings. It might be related to God, but you know what? There are plenty of people right now all over the world that are involved in religious services that are doing worship as simply a formal activity and God's not really on their mind. They're just doing something. So let's spend just a minute here on this thing of worship. Many people think worship is what happens with religious people in religious services. So let me say something to you and I want you to just let it settle. You have never met a person, nor have I, who's not a worshiper. I've never met anyone who doesn't know how to worship. We are all wired to worship. The question is not whether we worship. The question is who and what we worship. To worship is to devote ourselves with our energy and our attention and our, our, our resources and our hard engagement and our, our money and our time. And guess what? We worship this whole issue of my longings and my worship are not unrelated. They're one and the same. I worship what I think will address my longings. And what Jesus is doing is saying, guess what? God's part of the mix as well. They're all connected my longings, my worship, and who God is. And a powerful thing happens when we come in contact with the gospel and begin to drink the living water and we start realizing my longings are not something over here but central to who I am. And I want to let them under the light of the gospel, the enablement of the Holy Spirit, lead me to worshiping the giver of living water. You see, I'm an idolater by nature. Saying an idolater, mean a guy who worships idols? Uh-huh. I thought that was only a National Geographic thing and history and people worshiping statues. No, 
Idolatry is alive and well. It's part of our condition. John Calvin says we're idol factories, actually. We're always coming up with new idols to pursue, to address our deepest longings. And until we bring our longings, our worship, and God all into the same embrace, we're going to be going from mirage to mirage. A couple of years ago in the summer, California was having a drought. And a bizarre thing happened in Arizona. A flock of about 30 brown pelicans came out to an urban area in Arizona. And they all kind of landed at the same time, fairly close, but they landed on asphalt in sidewalks in a parking lot. And have, you, have you ever seen a pelican land on water? I mean, it's awkward as it is on water. When they landed on the asphalt, it was all these, you know, tum it was a mess. People were looking at this thinking, what happened? These pelicans just dropped out of the sky. So they're all lying there wounded in the uh, Department of Wildlife kind of got them together and they nursed them back to health. And they realized not only were the pelicans bruised and bloody from their crash landings on asphalt, they were also emaciated. They were dying of thirst. And they traced them back. They realized they've come from California where there was a drought. So here's what was happening. These pelicans dying of thirst, flying to Arizona, looking for water. And you know what happens in hot climates when the, 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 the warm air, cool air mixes, mirages happen. You ever looked in the distance? It looks like there's water in the distance on a long highway. It's not water. That's what these pelicans were seeing. They think it's water. They landed on the asphalt thinking they were landing on water. They're dying of thirst. They think they're landing on that which will quench and address their thirst. And instead, they land and crash in the middle of a mirage. Does that sound familiar? I do that all the time. We're dying of thirst. And we come to an idol and we crash land in the midst of the mirage, the illusion. And Jesus is calling that woman, while she's been chasing this mirage of thinking marriage is going to address her deepest soul's thirst, he says, I want you to remind you of something. You've been pursued in the midst of this. The woman thinks she's changing the subject when she moves from the issue of longings to worship. That's what they've been talking about all along. She just didn't realize it. Jesus didn't change the subject. He just brought her to the crux of the issue. I worship those things that I think will address my soul's thirst. And if I don't connect my worship over those longings with God, I'm going to crash land. I'm going to get bruised or worse. And so he tells her, a time's coming and has now come when true worshipers, notice he clarifies, he said true worshipers are going to be worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. He says, I'm calling you to be a part of a community of eternal life, a community of men and women that are quenching their thirst with me. Doesn't mean we don't do marriage and don't do jobs and so forth. In fact, we can enjoy those better because we're not going to those for what only Jesus can give us. He 
calls us to be individuals, but also a community of men and women of eternal life. What does that look like? Let me give you a definition. True worship. It's not just something that happens between 11 and 12 on a Sunday morning when it's convenient. True worship is my active, all of life response to the worth of who God is and what he does. I'm going to say it again. I want you to just dwell on it a minute. True worship is my active, all of life response to the worth of who God is and what he does for my soul's thirst. It's active, it's not passive. A lot of people think of worship as coming and staring at the back of somebody's head for an hour while somebody else does something on stage. Now, when, when, when a community of eternal life starts getting this, realize it's not, it's not passive, it's not a spectator thing, it's active. And when we're coming together, we're all participating, not just watching some other people worship. They're leading us to exalt God for his worth, the worth of who he is and what he does. It's active, but it's also all of life. That, that means it's more than just when we get together from 11, 12 in, in a church service or online. What real worship, uh, worshiping community is, is when we get together, it's the culmination of a week of worship and it's propulsion into another week of worship. All of life, parties, work, clients, struggles, doctor's appointments, hobbies. I worship in all of life and I'm worshiping God by an all active all of life response and it's response to this the worth of who God is and what he does who he is and what he does for all creation but also for me Jesus is inviting this woman to embrace his worth not because he's got an ego need but because that's how she's wired and she, her soul's thirst is not going to be quenched until she directs her worship to him. My soul's thirst is not going to be quenched until I begin not just to worship. I'm already worshiping. But when I begin to participate in true worship and worship him. So what's that look like? Let me key in on three words that he says. True worshipers worship will worship in spirit and truth. Let's look at those three words kind of in reverse and bring up three responses. It's a threefold response. And all three of these are necessary for me to participate in true worship that's directed to God. Here's the first. We're keying in on that word truth. We must worship in truth. Uh, so first of all, my worship must involve my mind. So I'm going to put it this way. It, the, the, the first response is that it will, it will involve me recognizing God's worth. Engaging my mind. We're in a non-mind culture. We're in a, a culture that's addicted to amusing, ah, ah, negation, musing is thinking. We're not thinking. And true worship involves recognizing the worth of God. So I'm, I'm doing my pursuit, and Jesus is telling that woman, and he's telling you and me, while I'm doing it, God's been seeking me. He's tracking me. He says, Matt. Stop chasing the mirage. Stop worshiping that mirage and worship me. Recognize my worth. Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says, They exchanged the truth 
about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So this truth that Jesus is referring to is, is, is biblical sound theology. Understanding God's revelation of himself and thinking accurately about who he is. You know, there's that, as Pat Morley talks about, there's the God we want and the God who is, they're not the same. Let's worship the God who is, the truth about him. But it also goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than just having good theology. It means I start using my mind on a daily basis to recognize the worth of God in a variety of situations, to recognize his enoughness, his ability to uh, address my thirst. Psalm 111, verse two. Great are the works of the Lord. They are ignored by all who delight in them, right? No, they are what? Pondered, I love that word. How much pondering have I done about the worth of God, the works of God, what God is up to, who he is and what he's done? Usually we're so busy on our phones and our schedules and our to-do lists, and we save worship for that one hour to spectate on a weekend when instead every day is an invitation to worship, to ponder what God is up to in my life and the lives of people around me. But it's going to take me exercising my mind and recognizing his worth. And that's an intentional activity. I don't know if you know the name Joshua Bell, one of the greatest uh, violin virtuosos living on this planet. And he um, has played in every major, with every major orchestra, numerous awards and albums. Several years ago, the Washington Post did an, kind of an experiment. They asked Joshua Bell, at the time he's probably about 40, to uh, just dress in some jeans and you know, not, not really impressive, uh, kind of dirty clothes, gave him a baseball cap, and they, they put him in uh, at a prime intersection in the subway in Washington, D.C. 7.51 a.m. on a January morning when it started, Friday morning, busy time. He played for 45 minutes. He played six different pieces that he had just played in Carnegie Hall the week before. 1,097 people walked past him during that time. Seven people stopped. Only one person recognized him. Nobody was recognizing the beauty of what was right in front of them. In fact, one blogger said about it, he said, if we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written, how many other things are we missing? What have I missed this week by failing to recognize the worth of who God is and what he does? by fa failing to worship him in truth. Elizabeth Barrett Browning in her poem, Aurora Lee, she says, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. It's a haunting word. Have I been unaware this week of God's activity in my life? Have I been unaware of his worth, what he wants to bring to my thirst? You see, over and over, 
number, the, the Psalms and in scripture saying, consider, consider, consider. Job is one. Job chapter 37, verse 14 says, listen to this. Stop and consider God's wonders. Stop and consider. I'm pursuing my idols. I'm pursuing those things that I think. Stop, he says. And consider the one who's pursuing me for worship. And redirect my worship from this to him. By recognizing his work. There's a second. Let's look at the second word. It's not just truth. He brings up another. This is worship in spirit and truth. So my, th my response on a daily, hourly basis is not only to recognize God's worth, using my mind, but it's also to resonate with his worth, with my spirit, with my heart, worshiping him with my inmost being. So number one, recognize the worth of God. Number two, resonate with the word of God, the works of God, the beauty of God, the activity of God, the water of God. Resonate. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So when he says worship in spirit and truth, he's referring to the inmost being, a heart and spirit being interchangeable in that context. So here's what Jesus is referring to. Matthew chapter 15, verse eight and nine. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain as a result. Their teachings are merely human rules. It's not just a matter of me stopping and recognizing God's worth. I need to also exercise my, my heart and resonate with the relevance of his worth to what my need is in this moment, that he's enough. And so often our worship doesn't engage our hearts. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Abolition of Man, talks about a tragedy. He says, we're, we're raising a generation of, of, of men and women without chests, meaning without heart, without courage, without conviction, without passion. And so often in religious institutions, there's worship by men and women without chests, without hearts engaged. Stephen Charnock, classic theologian, 17th century, wrote a treatise that is magnificent on the existence and attributes of God. What are the attributes of God? What is he like? And in his treatise, he says this, without the heart, it is not worship. It's just a stage play. An acting apart without being that person, a hypocrite. And the notion of the word is a stage player. That's what a hypocrite is. And to worship without our spirits is presenting God with a picture, an echo, but nothing else. So it's me recognizing, stopping and recognizing God. That's the first response. Second response, resonating with the worth of God. Third response, reacting to the worth of God. A threefold response where I'm with my mind recognizing the worth of who he is in this situation, with my heart resonating with his worth and uh, uh, identifying with, with the relevance of his worth to my thirst at this moment. But it will also involve thirdly 
a reaction, my actions. The reason we put the, put the word worship up there, when Jesus uses that word worship, look, there are a couple of Greek words in the New Testament that are used for worship. There are a couple of Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are translated in English worship. Every one of them refers to something that's visible. It's a bodily posture. Worship is not just, hey, we say worship's a private thing. You know what? Worship can be seen. It can be demonstrated. Uh, it's, it's noticed by people around. It involves the way I spend my time, the way that I sing. It, so the whole notion of just watching worship is not worship. Worship will involve action, a reaction to his worth. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Mark chapter 12, verse 29. So here Jesus sums it up, as he often does. It's taken me all this time to say what he's about to say. Verse 29, the most important one answer Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart resonating. With all your soul and with all your mind recognize. And with all your strength react. Every day, everywhere, every way. And the community of eternal life is a worshiping community every day, every way, in all of life. Several years ago, my oldest son graduated from high school. His name's Andrew. He was about to enter the United States Air Force Academy. They had about two weeks between high school graduation and when he needed to report. It's kind of like a vacation when they get there, you know, in terms of the basic training. But um, just kidding. But with each of my sons, I said, you know, where do you want to go for a senior trip? And his choice was he wanted to go to Normandy. We'd been reading up on World War II and the shore and uh, the beach in, in France where D-Day occurred and all the events surrounding that. So we headed over there. We did a tour of all, a lot of the Normandy locations and sites. And we finished our day at a cemetery. In fact, I was reminded of this this week. I was on a plane. The guy next to me was watching the movie Saving Private Ryan. That movie opens and closes at this cemetery. It's called colville Cemetery. And uh, it occupies a little bit over 170 acres of American soil given to America by France for, for burial ground. It's right above the bluff of five miles of beach called Omaha by the code name Omaha back on the D-Day invasion. And it's a sobering place of the price of our freedom. Almost 11,000 reminders of what freedom costs. A sea of crosses. We finished our day there, so it was at the end of the day, and what Andrew did not know is that I had arranged through an, a friend of mine who was a military officer, uh, to, who very graciously allowed Andrew, because of him being an appointee to the Air Force Academy, to be able to retire the colors at the cemetery. Retiring the colors means taking the flag down. But in, a, in, a, in, in military form, you take the flag down in a very specific way. And it taps, it's play, you know. It's, it, it, and so I told Andrew right before it happened. I had brought something in my backpack for him to wear that was appropriate, that met what uh, their codes would have been. And 
he, not, he knows there's a specific way to fold the flag. You've seen tri the triangular fold. and it, it, Everything is very intentionally designed. Andrew knew about that from previous training. And so I, I was shocked because at the last minute they said, you can help him, meaning I held the flag on one end while he on the other folded it. I was glad I had sunglasses on because I was losing it. Here we're in the midst of 11,000 reminders of the cost of freedom, knowing my son has just signed a blank check saying, I'm willing. And I'm willing gladly. But he folded that flag, gave it to the honor guard, the color, the color guard there. Everybody on the cemetery stopped and watched this. What was done when the music was done and he had turned it over to them. And I was so proud of him, he didn't miss a beat. Then he and I walked back into this sea of crosses, just to unpack it a little bit. Cry some, reflect. And while we were talking, 10 young men came up to us. They were dressed similarly and I discovered they were all part of a special forces unit from Great Britain. And they were there touring Colville, the cemetery in Normandy. But they came up for a very specific reason. They were intrigued by the way Andrew treated the flag and honored the flag. They don't have that. No other nation does what we do with our flag. They have their union jack, but they don't have a specified way to treat it like this. They were intrigued, they were curious, and they, they just, they, they could tell the honor with which the flag was treated and wanted to know why and tell us more. So as Andrew's explaining this to them, I kind of walk away. And then I went to a different place. In my heart, I started thinking, God, okay, those guys noticed the way Andrew was honoring the flag. How many people in my life notice on a daily basis how much I'm honoring God? How many people notice how much I'm worshiping? My recognition of the worth of God, my resonating with the worth of God, my mind and my heart, but also my reactions, the way I'm acting is an act of worship. And as we are the churches, personal churches distributed, our worship is not a private thing. It's to be noticed, not in a pious sense, look at me, but in a humble sense of men and women who have found the water of eternal life and who say, you know what? You can find it too. And people say, yeah, how? Stop, look over your shoulder because you've been tracked. You've been pursued to this very point in your life. As those worshipers, let's stand right now. Jesus, thank you that you are the living water. Thank you that you are the one who addresses our soul's thirst. You are the one who can bring what all of us do well, and that's worship. You're the one that can bring worship to its healthy, originally intended place in our lives. We came into these auditoriums or these rooms where we're watching online as worshipers. 
We've been worshipers our whole life. But would you teach us that as a community of eternal life, it's worshiping you, the giver of eternal life, the giver of living water. It's directing all of our longings, bringing them to you. Give us the courage this week to daily, hourly, moment by moment, be active in our worship. Be all of life in our worship as we recognize and resonate with and react to the worth of who you are and what you're up to in our lives, individually and as a church. I pray this in the name of the reservoir of life, the reservoir of the water of life. You, Lord Jesus, amen, amen. We're gonna sing the benediction to one another. Then you're gonna be dismissed to leave worship and not worship again until next week when you come back. Wrong. We're going to dismiss each other to go worship. And then when we come back next week, we come back as culmination of what's been happening. In the meantime, you need a need you, to be prayed for. Come on down front. Students, go to the hub. You guys online, uh, Bill and Nathan, they're, they're, they're ready to serve you as their online ministers. Uh, Arlene, I'll be in the back as well. But we're going to sing something that's been sung for hundreds of years. I'm praying you're about to sing it differently than you ever have before. Whether slightly or drastically, it's called the doxology. Doxa, it's the word for glory. Ology comes from logia, which means speaking. And we're about to speak glory to one another. Don't watch somebody participate. Even if I'm not singing, I'm participating. And even during this song, recognize, resonate, and react to the worth of who he is and what he does. Sing it, not to the back of someone's head, but to the core of their heart that's around you. And let's commission one another to be worshipers. After this proclamation, after this song, you're dismissed. But right now, don't watch. Participate. And let's worship.